Mark chapter number 9 and verse number 30. It says, And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto him, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him, and after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. They understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. And he came to Capernaum and and being in the house, he asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace, for by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and a servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one such one of such children in my name, receiveth me. Whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him, because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can likely speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. And whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck, and he were cast into the sea. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter into the life maimed than having two hands to go into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And, it is better, and if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter in the kingdom of God with one eye, and having two eyes to be cast into hellfire, where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its saltness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, have peace with one another. Salt was a valuable mineral in ancient Rome, um, so much so that soldiers were sometimes paid for it. That's where the word salary comes from. It's the Latin word, word uh, sal, the Latin word for salt. So our word salary comes from that word salt. Still valuable um, in today's world, in the United States, we use salt for just about everything. I was surprised. I read that only 6% of the salt used in the United States is used for, for food. 
use it for all types of different uh, industrial, agricultural applications. And so as much salt as we have in our food and, and that we use, 94% um, of the salt the United States uses for different reasons. So uh, all kinds of uses, good uses for salt. Uh, salt is also good for spicing up our language. Um, I was looking at the term salty, and that's about as utilitarian a word as the mineral is. Um, that slang term, someone being salty, uh, been in usage for over 200 years, and it can mean all sorts of things. Uh, people think it began with sailors because they lived on the salty sea and they came to shore with a salty attitude. Um, it can mean somebody being earthy, crude, profane. Um, they could be piquant, you know, uh, some of a, a stimulating charm that kind of shocks people, but everybody likes it anyway. Um, it could be a bitter person, angry, or an argumentative person. And that's how most people use it today. So if somebody's saying someone's being salty, they're upset, they're angry, and they're argumentative, and they've got sort of a sharp uh, response to what someone is saying. Well, in our text, the disciples were being kind of salty um, in the argumentative sense, not trying to psychoanalyze them or anything. We can't do that. But um, if you think about what just happened before there, they were just kind of humiliated by the demon that they couldn't cast the demon out. And the scribes started arguing with them about it. And that multitude gathered talking about their failure. And they're arguing with the scribes. And Jesus comes down and says, what are you guys arguing about? And they said, well, your disciples failed. They couldn't cast out the demon. Well, now, on the way to Capernaum, we find out they're arguing amongst themselves. And then later on in the story, John was saying, well, yeah, about that, there's this other guy we've been arguing with, too. So they were kind of being salty with everybody in the argumentative sense. And, and that is what I'm going to be preaching on uh, for the, uh, this morning, but being salty for Jesus. And um, by the time we get to the end, uh, you'll know which usage I'm using for that term. But we had the, the disciples were salty among themselves and with everybody else, but then we wrap it all up with what Jesus is saying there in verse 49 and 50. And there's a reason the disciples were acting like this. And it all starts in verse 30 and 31. There's a reason why they were argumentative with everybody, including themselves, that they were fighting amongst themselves, that they were fighting amongst people who were actually on their side. I think it all comes down to verses 30 and 31, that they were missing the point of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ has to be central in our lives. And all of our works, our service to the Lord, our relationships, our church life, it all needs to flow from our faith and knowledge in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't compartmentalize the gospel over here and then everything else in our life is in another compartment. But everything that we do from our relationships with each other here in the church, your relationships at home, your relationships with your neighbor, with people you like, with people you don't like, your heart, your own dealings with yourself, it all must flow from our knowledge 
of the saving grace that we find in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we examine the disciples and their attitude, we see how Jesus corrects it. And we'll see how that all flows, I think, from them missing the gospel. So in verse 30 and 30 through 32, they're passing through Galilee to avoid the crowd, and they're avoiding the crowds along the way. They're headed towards Jerusalem. Jesus is headed towards the cross. In fact, just you flip a page over or two, and they're in Jerusalem. That we are nearing the end. Jesus is headed towards the cross, and that's what he's teaching them. That's what he's preparing them for, that he's about to die. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. The Son of Man will be killed. But the Son of Man will rise on the third day. The disciples didn't get it, though. They just didn't understand what he was saying. Not that he didn't understand the words, but they didn't get what he was talking about. I can only guess they thought it was a parable of some sort. Well, Jesus must be the Son of Man dying. That must be some kind of parable. It must mean something, but I I don't understand what he's talking about. I can only guess they thought that, and it's the hardest thing in the world to be confronted with the truth that contradicts your prejudices or your preconceived notions. So if you already believe something to be true, and you you believed it all your life, and then you're confronted with evidence that's the opposite. That's hard to deal with sometimes. And sometimes your mind will just think of ways to interpret that so, you, so that truth is there, but also you don't have to say that you're wrong. So if you believe something is true, it's hard to reckon with evidence that shows you that you're wrong. You just interpret the evidence in a way that goes along with your theory. That's what most people do. That's what you and I do naturally until we have to reckon with the fact that, oh, well, I guess I'm wrong. When I was in vocational school, my teacher told me about a person who came into the car garage because their air conditioning in their car wasn't getting as cold as it used to. And so they added uh, Freon to the car, and they said, well, it's just because they... You don't get that good free on like you used to, and that was the reason. And so they charged her and sent her on her way, and she came back a couple days later and said, that wasn't it. It's not as cold as it used to be. And they said, well, it's probably your compressor then. And so they swapped out the compressor. She came back a day or two later. It was the same thing. It just wasn't getting cold enough. And she was frustrated at this point, spending all that money, and it wasn't any different than it was. Well, they called the teacher from the vocational school, since he was the air conditioning guy, come and help them because they were stumped. Well, the problem had been that it had been over 100 degrees every day that week. And this had been about 20 years ago, but typically the uh, air conditioner is only going to drop the temperature 10 to 15 degrees. You know, it, It's not like you can set it on 50 degrees and it's going to take it down to 50 degrees it'll just take it down 15 to 20 degrees and the problem that she was having was it was 105 degrees outside and so it was only getting down so cold and it wasn't as cold as it was when she had the air conditioner on full blast and it was 70 degrees outside but they were convinced everybody the mechanics 
and the woman, they were all convinced that there was something wrong. And they were looking in the wrong, they were looking at the whole thing wrong. And it was hard for them to see anything else because they were convinced they were on the right track. Well, two days later, whenever the, the temperature dropped, her air conditioner was back to being as cold as it, as it used to be. Well, the disciples were convinced. I say that because they were convinced that the Son of Man had come to conquer the world at any moment. They were convinced of it, and, and that's the way it was going to happen. They were convinced that the Son of God had come to sit on the throne of David. The Son of Man had come in glory to conquer the heathen and set up his kingdom. The death of the Son of Man didn't compute in what they had already, in what they already believed. And it wasn't just them, that was just what everybody thought. And so when Jesus said the Son of Man had to die, they said, well, the Son of Man can't die because the Son of Man has come to conquer the Romans and, and set up his kingdom and begin his, his earthly reign. So he can't die. It must be a parable. Right? The, the thought never occurred to them, well, maybe I'm on the wrong track. Maybe what I believe isn't what's going to happen. And so, rather than ask, they just went along with life. They were afraid. Last time Jesus predicted his death, Peter said that he wasn't going to allow it, and Jesus said he was doing the work of Satan. So maybe they were saying, well, maybe better not to say anything and risk getting uh, called Satan like Peter did last time. Or maybe Peter said, well, I'm not going to say anything this time. I said something last time, and... and I said the wrong thing, so they were afraid. They just went on. Isn't that sad how the sin of pride hurts us? Pride, you know, we want to lift ourselves up and we want to protect ourselves and, and our ego or our reputation. But really, pride will hurt you more than anything. People would rather be wrong than told that they're wrong. People would rather be wrong in what they believe and live their whole life being wrong than for someone to come and tell them that they're wrong and then get, on, get right. Well, isn't that the truth? People get upset. Say, well, you're wrong. Well, I'd rather be wrong. I'd rather do everything wrong and get everything wrong than for someone to come and try to help me. That's pride. Isn't that sad how pride destroys us? Pride, a man will be happier to be ignorant than to learn the truth. That a person would rather be ignorant and be devoid of truth than to admit that he doesn't know it and learn it. That's what pride does to us. Pride will make a person prefer darkness and sin and the devil to save his feelings. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? That that. We are, as sinful people, would prefer to hurt ourselves than to admit wrong, ignorance, or have to say, oh, I made a mistake and turn around and head back the right direction. Pride will make a person continue in error and to continue in confusion and pretend to know not things rather than to ask for help and understanding and walk in the truth. That's what pride will do. 
And what happens is it, it cultivates a culture of, of doing that. Where one of the disciples might say, well, I don't want everybody else to know that I don't know what I'm doing. So I'll just pretend I know what, what Jesus is talking about and not say anything about it. Peter did that. Looked over at James and John and said, well, I don't want James and John not to think that I'm the only one that doesn't get it. And then Andrew says, well, I don't want Peter to think that I don't know. Peter must know. He's not saying anything. So I'm not going to say anything either. So all 12 of them preferred confusion and darkness and ignorance rather than just admitting they didn't know. Now, now Jesus, every time throughout the Gospel of Mark, when the disciples said that they didn't know something, Jesus would tell them. And when the disciples say, we don't understand what you're saying with the parables, he would take them aside and, and teach them the parables. Now he might say um, how long, or he might say something about it, but still he, he would tell them. But here they just they didn't know and they're afraid to ask. Their pride has consequences for him. Why did Jesus come to die? Who's going to deliver him? What's the purpose of the resurrection? There's a lot of questions they could have asked. Now, we know the answer. We know why Jesus came to die, right? We know his purpose. We know who delivered him. So in Mark, when Jesus says the Son of Man will be delivered... That carries two ideas with it. First, that Jesus is delivered according to the plan of God. Now, this is God's plan. Why the Son of Man has come? Because this is part of the, the plan. Jesus is telling them what's going to happen, but it also carries with it the idea of betrayal. That he's going to be delivered by bad guys to more bad guys for a bad purpose. We're not going to turn there, but but in Judah or in uh, chapter fourteen, Judas delivers Jesus. Mark uses that same word several times in chapter fourteen. Um, he's later in chapter ten uh, delivered, be delivered, um, and then uh, by Pilate in chapter fifteen delivered, betrayed, turned over. So Jesus is saying the Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be taken by bad guys and given over to be killed. And they shall kill him. But the Son of Man is going to fulfill all those prophecies. The disciples had it right that Christ would reign. They had it right that he would conquer and he would rule. But not on the disciples' program. They have the ending right. There's a lot of stuff in the middle that they've missed. They've missed that whole big middle section in the book of Isaiah about the suffering servant. First, he must die. Then he will rise from the dead. First, he must suffer. Then he will rise. He will defeat the great enemy. See, the disciples, had, they didn't realize that they had a bigger enemy than the Romans. There was a bigger, more vicious ruler that had his foot on their necks. There was a greater Caesar that had them in subjection 
than the one that sat in Rome. For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. The Jews hated being ruled by the Romans. They hated it. They despised it. But there was a, a greater ruler, a more vicious ruler than Caesar. And that was the devil. And they were in bondage far greater than what Pilate had them in. They were in bondage to sin. They were in the chains of sin, in bondage, and in fear of death, subject to a lifetime of bondage. But Jesus Christ came to die that he might through death, deliver them from this taskmaster and, do, and break the chains of sin and set them free. They just wanted political freedom. They wanted, they wanted all the blessings that would come along with the great king of kings to sit in Jerusalem, which will come. There was a far greater enemy that had the rule over them, and not only them, but all people all over the world. That is sin and, and Satan. In Romans 6, it says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall live with him. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died into sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Jesus came to die that he might deal with our sin. And he rose that we might live unto God. That we would no longer be under dominion of sin and the power of Satan and under the bondage of the fear of death, but, but to defeat death, to defeat Satan, to uh, die for our sins, that he was raised for our justification, that, and because that he lives, we live and have life everlasting. Free from the, the guilt of sin and the power of sin, the dominion of sin. Set free and at liberty and justified before God. That's what Christ had come to do. That's what the Son of Man had come to do. But, and that's what the disciples were missing. And that's what they were afraid to ask about. The whole purpose of the Son of Man to come and to die for our sins and to raise for our everlasting life. And they were afraid to ask about it. Don't be afraid to ask about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid to, to say, I don't understand. That'd be a terrible thing to live your whole life and say, well, I just don't understand. But I'm not going to say anything because then what would people think of me? No. They should have asked. But they didn't, and now they're sort of in darkness. Well, that's one reason, I think, they start getting salty among themselves. Verses 33 through 37. Because once they made it to the house they were staying at in Capernaum, Jesus asked the disciples, 
What were you guys arguing about on the way over here? Well, they held their peace. They didn't say anything. Jesus told them the gospel. They didn't understand. They didn't say anything. Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about? Convicted. They didn't say anything. Why? Because they're arguing about who would be the greatest. That's a pretty big, I mean, that's a confession right there. If somebody asks you what you were doing and just get quiet and drop your head. <laughs> you know, and everybody knows what you've done, and they, they just didn't want to say anything. They held their peace because they knew what they were doing was not right because they were politicking and positioning for power among themselves. Who's the greatest of the twelve? I was reading uh, J.C. Ryle, and he said it amazed him that these fishermen and a tax collector and a few others would be fighting about being the greatest about anything, let alone being the greatest among themselves. That these humble men from humble callings were called by the Lord Jesus Christ to follow him, and then they get proud about it. But they were fighting amongst themselves, arguing, I'm better. No, I'm greater. I, I should have more power than you. I should be in front of you. So forth. Well, Jesus sat down, called the twelve together. and said, if any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and a servant of all. His, after his first prediction, um, Jesus said if they were going to save their life, they had to lose it. Now he, another sort of paradox where he says if you want to be first, you've got to be last. If you want to be greatest, you've got to be a servant. So Jesus went and took a child that was there in the house and brought him in the midst of the disciples who were all standing there. And He took the little child up in his arms and said, Whosoever shall receive one such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. They were worried about power and position, their political dealings, being thought well of, being a man of influence, maybe wealth and power and importance. And all the things that are going to come, they're imagining as they're going to rule and they want to be in charge, and they want to be high up in, in Jesus' administration. And here's this child. What's the child's name? We don't know. We didn't even know there was a child in the story. The disciples didn't know there was a child in the story. This child over there in the corner, no one's paying attention to. This child has no power. This child has no influence. In this world, the child had very few rights. And apart from his family, very little importance. I read an article about um, how Western society is going back to paganism. And they were just talking about the Roman Empire and the Greeks, how that it was just a common thing for a baby to be born. And if it was a girl, maybe, that they would just... Leave, they, they exposed it, is what they called. 
I know that they had euphemisms for the same thing, just like people do today when they uh, dispose of unwanted babies, but they would expose the child. And what that means is they just leave it out to die, starve to death, die of the cold or whatever. If the child was sick, had something wrong with it, they just just lay it out, let it die. That's how children were thought of. And unless you were a very rich person and this per- child was a, a re- uh, an heir to a vast fortune, there was very little influence or power or anything that this child would have. Well, the great and the powerful in this world don't really concern themselves with weak, meek, and poor people anyway, except to use them as, as props or some, some such thing. Rich and powerful people do what rich and powerful people do. And the problem with politician or uh, po- political maneuvering is that they're opposed, people are opposed to being ruled, but they're not, they, they just want to be the ones ruling, I guess. And so the disciples didn't want to be ruled by the Romans because they wanted to rule other people. They didn't want Caesar in charge because they wanted to be in charge. And, and that's that mindset that they had. Well, Jesus tells them in his kingdom, if you want to be great, serve the least. If you want to have influence, serve the little child. That's why I that's why I if I vote for somebody, I vote for somebody who's a Christian, or at least professes Christ, as far as you can tell. Because the heart of a Christian sees their life as service to Christ, not service to themselves. So Jesus picks up this little child and says, whoever receives this little child, one of mine, and this child stands in for anybody that, that trusts in Christ. You receive this child, you receive me, he said. You care for those who have been out or outcast, who don't have anything that can give you anything. This child couldn't give the disciples anything. This child couldn't help them in any way, couldn't bless them in any way. But Jesus said, if you receive someone, one of my people, you receive me, you receive me, you receive the Father. As a follower of Christ, Jesus says, you receive my people. You don't look at my people as stepping stones to get where you want to get. You don't look at one another as stepping stones. If you want to be my follower, you follow after me. And what did Christ tell them? That he came to die for them. See, if they had thought about the gospel, what Christ had come to do, that Christ came from the glories of heaven to the sin-cursed world to die for these people, to die for their sins, not to step on them, 
to, to gain for himself, but to serve. And here are these, these disciples arguing about who's the greatest, where the greatest of all had come, humbled himself, and serves them and teaches them and is patient with them. But more than that, he dies for them. So if they had understood the gospel and thought about the gospel in terms of who they are and what Christ has done for them, being great would be the last thing. It would be receiving even the, the least to, to loving the meek and the humble and those that can't do anything for you. Well, how did the disciples answer? Well, we find out that it wasn't just them being salty with each other. They were salty with uh, everybody else, too. Because John says, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him because he followeth not us. And I thought about that, and I thought, now, what was John trying to, what was John thinking about? What must have been going through his mind? Because Jesus got this little child in his arms and saying, don't argue about being the greatest. You've got to receive one like this child. And you do that, you receive me. Well, then John comes around, tells this story about them forbidding someone to cast out devils because they didn't do it in his name. So I think John's mind goes back to how they didn't receive somebody who was doing the work in Jesus' name. So Jesus says to Takes a child, says, if you receive one in my name, you receive me. So John's thinking back and saying, well, there was somebody that was coming in your name, but he didn't follow us. So we told him to stop it. So I think Jesus, or John, is probably, it's probably a half confession and half uh, question. Just throwing, out, throwing it out there, Lord, we... We forbade somebody from casting out devils because they didn't follow us. And so it wasn't, I think he was confessing what they did and then asking for a decision whether they were right or wrong. Jesus gave the disciples authority to exercise demons and here was this guy doing it apart from the group. Now he heard Jesus, but they thought forbidding them was the right way to go. Was it? And it is kind of remarkable if you think about it. Just a while ago, the disciples failed at casting out a demon. They publicly failed. They failed big time. And then they're for, now they're forbidden people because they're not following them. All right. So here the disciples failed at casting out a demon. Here's somebody else that's actually doing it. And they say, hey, you got to stop doing that because you're not following us. But it's not that the guy wasn't following Jesus. It was because he wasn't following the 12. He wasn't one of the 12. So Jesus knows the situation. He, know, he knows what he's talking about. And Jesus said, forbid him not. For there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. 
this guy truly was doing a miracle. Truly. It wasn't a sham. It wasn't, um, it wasn't, he wasn't a charlatan. In Jesus' name, he was casting out devils. And Jesus said, one that does works in my name can't turn around and speak evil of me. Now, how can he do this? Well, he can only do this by the power of God. And he said, someone can't do something in my name and then just turn around and speak evil of me at the same time. For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. He that is not against us is on our side. He that does the work of Christ will be rewarded for it. Even down to the giving of a drink of water in the name of Christ, they will be rewarded for it. Who was this guy? Was it a disciple of John the Baptist? I, we don't know who he was. But Jesus said uh, that he that is not against us is on our part. He's on our side. Better than the work be done by other hands than the work not done at all. So you had a man over here who's fighting Satan, fighting darkness, and fighting against the powers of darkness. In sincerity and in truth and in Jesus' name, here was a brother. Don't shoot your brother in the back while he's serving the Lord. You know, there's warnings all over the New Testament about deceivers and antichrists and false teachers. But those guys are the tools of Satan, or themselves deceived because they're talking about another Jesus. But this guy wasn't doing that. He just wasn't part of, part of the twelve. Well, just because somebody differs us in some things about the government or nature of the church doesn't mean they're wicked and they're the enemy of Christ. It doesn't mean that it isn't important. It just means that we ought not to be fire, we ought to be firing at the right enemy. We, we have to be, I think we are, have to be very particular of our own house. I, have, I ought to be the strictest on myself than anybody else. I'd be stricter on myself than I am with anybody else. And then we as a church ought to be very particular because we confess certain truths. And we say this is what this church believes. And so we are very particular about ourselves. But if someone's out preaching the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and preaching the truth of the gospel and, and preaching the doctrines of the, the glorious grace of Jesus Christ, then I rejoice that Christ is being preached. If they are preaching the truth, if they're upholding the gospel and telling sinners the way to life and peace, I rejoice that he's preached. Paul said in Philippians 1, some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and of strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add afflictions to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding, every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, 
and therein do I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. I don't have to link hands with everybody that calls themselves the church. I mean, that's not what that's saying, and that's not saying that things aren't important. But what the disciples were saying is because you're not doing what I want you to do with us, you can't be doing it at all. Not only so, there's a great danger in offending the children of God. It'd be better if you tied a millstone like a grist mill. It'd be better if you took one of those big giant millstones and tied it around your neck and go out in the middle of Summersville Lake and toss it off the boat than to offend one of God's children. To sin against one of God's children. That'd be a terrible way to die, wouldn't it? I was thinking about that. Just, oh, a terrible way to die. Jesus said, it'd be better off if you do that than offending one of God's little ones. The least of Christ's people are still Christ's people. Be careful not to harm the people of God. We're dealing with eternity here. Who's the greatest? Stop stop doing that. Stop serving the Lord in Jesus' name. It doesn't seem all that important when you put it in the context of eternity. The disciples in their pride were concerned about who was doing what and and if they had their permission to do what and, and, and so forth. Do you have my permission? We didn't tell you you're allowed to do that. I'm the greatest. You need to come to me and talk to me before you go and, and serve the Lord and all these things. And Jesus said, look, they're serving the Lord. And they'll be rewarded for, their, they'll be rewarded for giving you a cup of water. Their master is God Almighty. I have enough to worry about with myself and the church that I'm a member of and to worry about what everybody else and everybody else in the world says or does or thinks. If a man preaches Christ, well, I'm, I, I, glory, I rejoice that my Lord is preached truly and, and rightly. But as Brother Harold said in Sunday school, Thinking about eternity would do us a whole lot of good. Verses 43 through 47 call for more reflection, really, than exposition. Just to hang on and think about that. You got eternal death, the unimaginable horrors and torments of everlasting darkness. where they used to sacrifice children in the Old Testament days to Kamosh in that valley. And they turned it into a, a garbage heap, to a cemetery for people who didn't have any place to bury their dead. Just a place people go and burn their trash. You think about body laying out and exposed where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. 
an eternal death. But not of just the flesh, but a conscious, a, a living dead, conscious throughout all eternity in darkness, in agony, in horrors. So Jesus uses this illustration where the worm dieth not just to say how bad it is. That, that it's not going to end. You're not going to eventually just go off into nothingness. It's, it's always going to be there. You're always going to exist in this suffering. And Jesus said it'd be better to cut your hands off than to stab a brother in the back. It'd be better to cut your foot off than to kick a brother when he's down. It'd be better to poke your eye out than look for problems and look for controversies and, and so forth. That's how devastating sin is. And you all saying, you all fighting about this stuff? And your pride and your your arrogancy. And there is an everlasting hell of torment for those who sin against God. And it never ends. You here this morning, I don't want you to go to hell. I don't want you to burn in God's judgment. To be cast into hell into the fire that never shall be quenched. For the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. He said it three times. Over and over. Never ends. Three times. Just that refrain, that echo. Into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Cast into hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. Set that next to arguing about who's the greatest. Set that reality next to, well, we didn't give you permission to cast out demons. Jesus said, Let's not hurt a child of God. This pride and arrogancy, that's the kind of stuff that unbelievers do. Don't believe the gospel. Well, let me wrap it up with verse 49 and 50. And we're a little bit long, but let's look at let's look at this before we close. Being salty for Jesus. For everyone that shall be salted with fire, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost the saltness, wherewith will you season it? Have salt in yourselves, and have peace with one another. The disciples were warned not to sin against their fellow Christians. So in the Old Testament, almost every sacrifice was offered with salt. Leviticus 2.13, Every oblation of thy meat offering shall, be, shall thou season with salt. Neither shall thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering. With all thy offerings thou shalt offer salt. So these sacrifices of the covenant that were offered with salt. And so believers of the new covenant 
need to live salty. Not in an argumentative way like the disciples, but in the covenant way of being forgiven, of being cleansed, of being sanctified in the pursuit of godliness and the pursuit of holiness as a preservative in this world, as medicinal in preaching the gospel. Because if a salt loses its saltiness, then what is it? It's just a, a hard nothing. It's pointless. Jesus said, be salty. You guys are being salty with each other. That's what I said. Jesus said, you need to be salty in this world. With the salt of grace. With the salt of purity. In the covenant. Back in the gospel. That's what they missed. They missed the gospel, and look where it landed them. What's a Baptist church without Christ? It's a terrible thing to be a Baptist church without Christ. What's a disciple of Christ who spends all this time being salty towards the children of Christ? What's a follower of Christ who spends their life hurting people on the journey? The disciples had been salty with the scribes, each other, other people serving Jesus, they were proud about their calling. They were proud about being first. They were proud about who could exercise demons and who couldn't. But that's not the way of Christ's disciples. And it all starts at the beginning of our text, and they're missing the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ must be central in our lives, in our work, our service, our relationship, our church. And it all flows from our faith and knowledge of Jesus. They argued with themselves about being great because they didn't comprehend their sinfulness and the great cost of their salvation. They forbade others to serve Christ because they were not in their clique, because they didn't comprehend the beauty of the gospel. They were being hard-hearted because they didn't meditate on what Christ had saved them from, death and hell, and the life he gave them in, by grace. They held their peace when Christ questioned them, but what they needed was to be at peace with one another. The God of peace has granted us peace through Christ, and by the God of grace, we're no longer at war with God. He's made peace with us through the blood of his cross. No longer enemies, but friends. Saved, forever saved from the fires of hell. Saved from that awful place where the fire shall not be quenched and where the worm dieth not, saved from everlasting darkness and everlasting torment, saved from that awful hell that we all deserve for breaking God's law, saved and given life and saved and given peace and saved and given forgiveness, saved to follow the Lord Jesus, saved to one day sit with him and reign with him and, and to be forever with the, the Lord in all eternity and blessedness and joy. And he gave us this. And against the backdrop of the gospel, how can we war with one another? And how can we, we be at odds with, with one another and to think of, of who's first and who's greatest and who's doing what and why? Against the backdrop of the gospel, Jesus says, be at peace. You have peace with me. Be at peace with one another and live salty in the good sense, in the covenant sense for the Lord Jesus.